So, welcome to the Sport in History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. Uh, this week, I'm continuing my series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR. And with me today is Dr. Michael John Law, uh, known to his friends as John. Hi, John. Hiya. Um, regular attendees of the seminar will know that it's not always about sport. We also welcome papers on leisure and British society, and that's where John fitted into our seminar programme in 2017. Uh, John is currently a research fellow in the Department of Humanities at the University of Westminster. And since completing his PhD in 2010, uh, John has written four books on Britain in the 20th century, including the latest, uh, Not Like Home, about Americans who were living in 1950s Britain. And I believe this is due to be published later in the year by McGill Queen's University Press, is that correct? Yeah, that's right, it's coming out in the beginning of August. Fantastic, yeah. I look forward to reading that. Mm. Um, but it was John's previous book, uh, 1938, Modern Britain, which formed the basis for John's paper at the seminar. Can you remind us of what you talked about, John? Well, uh, I had always thought um, that the period just before the Second World War was really unusual because, mm. um, you know, history, sort of general histories of the period um, just show a sort of very straight continuation of, you know, sort of interwar themes of, you know, flappers madness, um, depression, stock market crash, yeah. um, rearmament, war. Yeah. And it occurred to me that in 1938, which was the last full year before the war, that a whole lot of uh, interesting and modern things were going on, which really weren't, really weren't connected to the war at all. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I'll have a look at those. And that was the basis for my talk. That's what, it, um, that's what I wanted to try and explain a little bit about. As I remember, you were kind of challenging the periodization of, of British social history, really. Um, yeah, not the first to do that, of course, you know, because there's a sort of continuity and chasm argument before after both the, the First and Second World Wars. Um, and this is um, uh, part of a, a continuity argument that things in the 1950s are much cl more closely connected to things in the late 1930s than we would imagine. Yeah, I seem to remember that you, um, an example of that continuity was uh, television. I mean, everybody famous, everybody knows about the mm. famous broadcast from Ali Pali. Um, that the BBC was the first company in the world to broadcast television. But yeah, you really fir first high-definition broadcast, yeah. 1936. Yeah. yeah, and you really took it into mm. the technology and sort of demonstrated how what we think of as the 50s was already operating in the 30s in terms That's of That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, my work, you know, is largely about modernity. Mm. Sometimes it's about suburbia and Americanization, but all we're really wrapping around a theme about what, we, what it is to be modern yeah. in, in Britain. And um, the technolog technological aspects, I'm not a technologist myself, so uh, you know, I found some, some of the stuff a bit difficult to understand. But um, you know, I, I, I looked at the, um, something trying, I wanted to go beyond the BBC and you know, their, their, their famous starting point in 36. And uh, I, want, I looked at the television sets and you know, the prices of them to try and work out you know, how affordable they were, and the answer is, you know, incredibly unaffordable. Right. And there's, you know, these, these, the people who watch TV were, you know, the earliest of early adopters. Yeah. Uh, and were very wealthy and lived somewhere near Alexandra Palace. Even in war characters. Yes, or, or, or yourself would be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> sure I'm, I wouldn't call myself exceptionally wealthy, John. Oh, you lived near Alexandra Palace, though, didn't you? <laughs> Only in Friends. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, of course. Um, so, um, I started looking at TV sets, and I noticed that they had um, that they were available in the late 1930s, 1938, 
um, to um, widescreen high definition right. TVs. Um, so, which seems surprising because I mean, when you look back at it in the in the past, uh, at this period, you tend to think about TVs having like tiny cathode ray tubes, nine inch tubes or something, very yeah. very small. People crowded around. Crowded around them, and sometimes looking look, at the coronation. Yeah, yeah, sometimes looking in through mirrors as well. You know? Yeah. And but in fact, there were twenty six inch, thirty inch TVs. 52-inch TVs available in 1938, if you had the money. Yeah. It's quite experimental technology. Um, there, are two, there are two companies, Scoffany, which is uh, now, it didn't last much in, beyond about the mid-1950s, but also Philips, you know, the well-known electronics organization. Yeah. Um, and they both produced uh, widescreen TVs using uh, projection techniques. One which used was electronic, the Philips uh, solution was electronic all the way through from end to end, um, very sophisticated, um, but uh, not super practical. It's more, you know, a bit prototypey. Mm. And the Ascofany produced one which used a ro roti rotating aluminium hexagon. It was like, it seems to be like magic, but it was... Um, Sounds a bit steampunk. It was steampunk, yeah. It was yeah. a bit like, in fact, it was a bit like the technology that John Logie Baird put forward, but it was rejected by the BBC in, um, in the mid-30s. Yeah. So it was an um, electromechanical way of projecting the image onto a screen. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so actually they produced huge TV images and were able to take a live, in 1938, take a live broadcast of the, of the Derby at Epsom and project it in a cinema using yeah. this technology onto something about two metres by three metres. So, yeah, which is surprising, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you had some really striking images mm. uh, that accompanied your talk. But mm. one of the other things I found really interesting, partly as a, as a historian of empire myself, was the way in which you kind of challenged the popular conception of the empire being in decline after World War I, mm. and the way in which modernity um, was tied into empire by the Glasgow exhibition in 1938. Can you tell us some more about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, actually. Yeah, but the, the empire was definitely, uh, you know, bubbling away in public consciousness mm. very strongly in, the, in 1938. And, and indeed in 1936 as well, when it was probably more about disarmament than it was about, you know, the coming threat. Um, and uh, the empire exhibition in Glasgow, let's say in 1938, was um, something, was a big event at the time, uh, but you know, I was, I, you know, I've been sort of being nerding around history for twenty years. So I'd, I'd never heard of it before. Yeah. I knew about the, you know, Wembley. You know, yeah, Wembley uh, dominates that kind of literature, doesn't it? That's really? right. Well, then yeah. the Festival of Britain. Yeah. Oddly, you know, not and this isn't a coincidence. Both London events. Yeah. Whereas um, uh, the Empire Exhibition in uh, in Glasgow was uh, very Scottish, um, and. Um, didn't quite attract so much attention from the, um, you know, the London-centric media at the time, um, but was a huge um, modern event. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, we had modern architecture. The pavilions were very modern, um, and it featured uh, inside the pavilions were a lot of latest in technologies, in in radio and television, uh, cinema, uh, and you know, in in, in more industrial and more industrial stuff, yeah. uh, and flight and all the things which people thought were. Uh, important and modern at the time, um, and that's it's it's been uh, it's largely been forgotten. Um, you know, there's some there's some specialist architectural literature on it because the buildings were so striking. Yeah, I remember you gave a talk um, at the Isacom building where yeah. where you showed us some of the architecture there, and it was really kind of groundbreaking oh, yes. modern architecture. It was. Um, I mean, a lot of the modernists involved um, were then involved. Um, in, uh, at the Festival of Britain in 1951. So 
uh, 13 years later, the, so the people, Basil Spence, um, for example, was uh, mm. you know, a contributor to the architecture at Glasgow and then had a very key role in the Festival of Britain yeah, and, and of there are others as well. 13 uh, years is not that long really, is it? No, no. So they, no. they were in their early 20s when they were working in Glasgow and they're in their mid-30s when they were working yeah. at Festival of Britain. But because of um, the way that Festival of Britain has sort of clogged up thinking about um, architecture and culture, and it's seen as a sort of a keystone, yeah. an er, er event, which triggered off a whole lot of late 1950s modernity, yeah. Scandinavian designs and lightweight furniture and all that sort of things. Bland pastel colours. Yes, bland <laughs> that sort of thing. It's all. Um, yeah. But actually, quite a lot of for that, 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 even the pastel colour scheme was, um, you know, on display in, in Glasgow. All the you know, the, the, the uh, buildings were either plain white, or if they were painted at all, had you know very faint pastel colours, very reminiscent of the uh, of the idea shown in the Festival of Britain. And largely, of course, both of them dependent on Scandinavian yeah. archetypes. Alvarado. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that was uh, you know I think it's you know it's a very unusual and actually very popular event, which had a you know t about three times as many people visited it uh, as the Festival of Britain site. But you know, it's just uh, just disappeared from you, and partly that, of course, is because it was um, torn down um, because war was becoming inevitable by the time it had finished. Yeah. But that's certainly when when they organised it and designed it, they absolutely weren't thinking about the Second World War. They, they saw 1938 as uh, you know a year of where you know where the future was going to come. I guess real it had been them. planned for quite some time as well, hadn't it? Yeah, so it'd been planned for a couple of years beforehand. Yeah. 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 And your previous book um, on roadhouses was co-authored with uh, David Gutsky of the Missouri State University. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Can you tell us something about the process of co-authoring a work? Because for a lot of people, mm. historians tend to be, we're encouraged to collaborate, but we're, <laughs> we're, we're quite often solitary individuals in the way that we work. Yeah, I don't think that uh, academics are, are in fact natural collaborators no. at all. They tend to be very self-focused. I think, it, you know, of necessity. It's that, sort of, it's that sort of job, isn't it, really? Is it something that you would encourage people to do? Well, I think, um, you know, it's uh, David uh, is a much more senior academic than I am. He's uh, 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 you know a em eminent uh, distinguished distinguished professor at, uh, at his uh, college, um, and he's very well published and an authority in his field of um, the history of alcohol in Britain. Mm. Um, so I was pretty much the junior partner. Um, but I mean, the good news about that was that he was much more experienced in publishing than I was. Good, um, yeah, I suppose. The difficulty was that uh, um, you know both of us are quite strong-minded people. Yeah. You know, so uh, we both always thought we were right about everything. Like the Gallagher brothers. Very similar. <laughs> yes, I don't know which one I was. <laughs> yeah, I think I was Noel. Right. <laughs> yeah, so the one um, with the talent, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Yes. Sorry, David, I didn't mean that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but David um, taught me a great deal. I mean, one of the key things he taught me was how to write better English. Yeah. You know, so he would. Um, look at my um, draft chapters. We each wrote different chapters of the book, which is a good idea, I think. Um, and he was able to um, encourage me to write much more active sentences, mm. you know, where the s subject, object, and verb are much closer together than the sentences. In fact, ev in fact, every sentence has one of those three things in it. Yeah. Whereas previously, I used to write a lot of things in the passive voice, um, where you couldn't really be certain who did what to whom. Things just, just sort of happened. Yeah. And that was great. Um, I think writing alternative chapters is a sort of odd thing, really, because it's great, so you get the depth of knowledge. Um, but then when it comes to um, the final book, you need to have a very rigorous copy editor 
yeah. who can actually even out the tone of the writing to make it sound like it has a common authorship. And that's really hard to achieve, I think. Yeah. And I'm not sure we completely got there. I think you can tell, looking at it, who, who wrote each chapter. Yeah. I mean, another good, I mean, a good point of the collaboration was that David and I came from entirely different backgrounds. Um, I mean, David is steeped in the historical literature of, uh, of uh, alcohol consumption and abuse in the 1930s, which I was completely unaware of. And I was, um, if any, I was more looking about it from a spatial point of view. I was sort of interested in... Well, you started as a historical geographer. I did, you? yes. Yeah, yeah, I did. And still am a little bit. Um, you know, so I started looking at roadhouses as about uh, mobility yeah. and, uh, and the excitement of driving out along arterial roads. You know, when they were first formed in the 1930s, that was, and also, you know, the feelings of the the, you know, the the feelings of the drivers themselves as they as they were tooling down these roads, and one place they went to was roadhouses. So I started as a you know as a mobility study, mm. got into it a little bit about the, about the architecture of the road and the roadhouse next to it. So I, I was coming in from quite a different angle, and I was looking. At, I, I had sources which David had absolutely no idea of, so which were, you know, he never, for example, he didn't use photo libraries very much. Whereas I was sort of obsessed with finding photos yeah, of old roadhouses. Yeah. I had hundreds and hundreds, and yeah. it's like that. It was all new to him. So it really brings a strength if, you, if yeah, you're yeah. coming from two different fields and collaborating on the same Yeah, project. no, I think it was... Um, in fact, you know, we've had some fantastic reviews of the book. Um, uh, you know, so it's, you know, it's been well received, yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, some listeners may know that we go back quite a long way. Um, in fact, we met doing uh, an MA together at Birkbeck, just a stone's throw from where we are today. And something else that we have in common is that we both return to higher education as mature students. That's right. I was, yeah. I was, I was very mature. You were just mature, weren't you? Well, some people <laughs> would say I'm still not quite mature. <laughs> um, that's because uh, they yeah. don't know you, Jeff. Yeah, so. well, there might be people who are thinking about coming mm. back into higher education mm. who are listening to this. So maybe you could talk to us about the experience of, of taking up higher education after being out of the game for, yeah. for a while. No, it's really odd, really. I, mean, I, I, I didn't do anything like history. I, I did a sort of business degree at university, and that was a long time. That, that was, you know, thirty-year interval. Yeah. Finishing one and starting the next. But I had worked in, a, in an, uh, I worked in consulting, uh, and so I was used to writing. I was used to sort of formulating ideas, preparing presentations. So it was, you know, so I, in fact, I sort of um, was over optimistic going into doing a master's that I thought I had a lot of the techniques required yeah. to be a historian and also like a lot of blokes oh I like history yeah it's great isn't it you know it in is. the sense of yeah. reading it you yeah. know <laughs> as opposed to consuming it rather than producing it yeah and um, you know to do a master's you have to do a bit of production don't you which is um, yeah rather than just consumption and analysis it's a lot of work yeah and um, well I wasn't bothered I mean the one of the advantages I had was I'm not I was doing it in the evenings at first yeah and um, uh, you know I wasn't bothered about long hours and you know working late you know so I had a very strong work culture which was fine, um, but I, I overestimated my um, my ability to better formulate a academic argument. Yeah. And um, I learnt. So I mean, Birkbeck was fantastic. You know, it introduced me to uh, you know, you know, most new most historical concepts, all of which were new to me. Any sort of historical theory, I had no idea they existed. Yeah. The legendary so, Foucault course with Dr. Harry Cox. Yes, yes. Harry Cox was a strong influence. And, yeah. Um, on the very first day, I remember he said, um, I'm not at all interested in the history of facts. The yeah. very first thing he said to us, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. And um, I, must say, I, was, I was completely puzzled by that. 
and yeah. uh, but not anymore. So, but, uh, uh, facts are easy to find. Yes, yes. You want to look up? You want a fact? You look it up on Wikipedia, can't you? Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it was great. And um, I had absolutely no. When I did it, I had no intention of becoming an academic. Yeah. It was just an extension of my hobbyist um, uh, leanings and uh, enjoyment of London history. But like me, you kind of did the MA, and then you sort of think, oh, quite PhD could be interesting. Well, I was in, yeah, I was encouraged by uh, one professor, uh, Elizabeth McKellar, who was yeah. just fantastic. And um, she really liked some, an, I wrote an essay, not really quite understanding what I was doing. And she thought there was something extra, something you know, unusual. She really liked it. Mm. Um, it was some comparison between um, um, modernist architecture and, and uh, Georgian architecture in Bloomsbury, which is her, yeah, she's, she's she, the she, leading expert on. Yeah, she gave us a tour around Bloomsbury, didn't she? Yeah. And um, so she encouraged me, you know, thought I could do better. I didn't do it particularly well in the Masters. I sort of, um, you know, I could have done better. It's because I didn't really quite know even then how to write essays properly. Um, and I looked around um, for, I looked around for a person really to, because I thought I could do, I could do a PhD, but more of a hobby again. Mm. That's, you know, something I could do in part time and continue to work. And um, uh, I wanted someone who knew about, uh, at the time, about modernity and suburbia. So I googled modernity and suburbia and .uk and up came David Gilbert, who's a professor at Royal Holloway, yeah. who taught me everything I know about being a historian. It's a and fantastic the, experience there. And the rest is history. Uh, yeah, some of the geography, <laughs> but mostly history, yeah. But I think, um, so what's next for you? So you've, you've done 1938. Um, what's, the, what's the next book? Well. I do have a, a book coming out, as you mentioned, um, uh, which is uh, called Not Like Home, which yeah. is about um, American visitors to Britain in the 1950s. So it's an attempt to try and explore the, the intricacies of uh, Anglo-American relationships at a human level mm. and to see, you know, because I've studied a lot, I've done written about and studied Americanization as a, as a cultural force in Britain, and clearly it's very important, but I think there's an underestimation because of the strength of the cultural products, you know, Elvis, Bill Haley, cinema, yeah. I Love Lucy on the TV, all that sort of thing, there's a tendency to underestimate personal contact. Um, a lot of Brits met American soldiers in the Second World War, um, and, and, and there were you know, millions of Americans in Britain in, in the 1950s. I and think that's what people forget. They kind of think, often retrospectively think, oh, there was lots of GIs here during the mm. war, but there were they all left. They all stayed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, mean, not all of them, but... America was a, very, yeah. was a very popular destination for a certain sort of American. Yeah. Um, it tended to be from the coast, coastal areas, liberal, educated, lots of teachers. Yeah, quite over. Anglophile already. Yeah, some of them, yes, they were generally uh, Anglophile. Um, but they, were, they, they recorded in their journals, diaries, and uh, self-published accounts of their trips, uh, you know, their reactions to Britain. So you get uh, something about the distance between being an American and being a Britain, but also you get a sort of a, a, a different view of Britain in the 1950s from a stranger's viewpoint, yeah. which I think was uh, fascinating. And I was able to use a whole load of material from the Library of Congress, which was um, some of it had been published, but only in the very, you know, a bit like here, you have to give a copy to of every, even, even if you publish it, uh, ten copies to give it to your friends. Yeah. And you have to send a copy to the Library Published of Congress. For personal pleasures. Yeah, so yeah. almost everything I was, I was uh, using um, was uh, brand new material to the, um, and not had been, hadn't been part of any previous historical inquiry. So um, 
Yeah, I think it came out quite well, really. And I also was um, able to find um, a group of teenagers who spent their time in Britain. Yeah, you gave a paper about them where they were. Mm. They were at a school that's near right. an American military base. Yeah, it was. That's right. They had a. They, they were um, the children mostly of USA Air Force personnel who, who came as a family, and uh, they. So the US Air Force commissioned essentially an American high school, with all the apparatus of an American high school, you know, freshmen and sophomores and football teams and you know, cheerleaders and all that stuff, um, which. Uh, I think there's a Netflix series in that. Could easily be, couldn't yeah, I? Yeah, copyrighting that idea right now. Yeah. <laughs> we had a fantastic time in London, largely, um, although quite a lot of what happened to them in Britain puzzled them. Yeah. And it was, of course, the poverty and the. You know, they typically came from sort of suburban houses next outside of, of you know air force bases in Oklahoma or something like that, or, and they found a lot of it in London very strange. Um, the fact it was multiracial and was um, there was no colour bar, of course, and see a um, uh, you know a black man and a white woman kissing in public shocked them. Mm. Um, not certainly wouldn't have been possible in Alabama, um, and you know the poverty and dirt and, and decay. Yeah. Um, uh, surprised them. And they, were, they were great. They, they were great kids. They got a lot of. Uh, they, were, they had came from criticism, uh, a bit of uh, bullying, sometimes bits of threats of violence from teddy boys. But also, they weren't uh, angels themselves, and they were very happily uh, would paint up the IRA and lipstick on their on their buses, took them to and from school, or, or give the finger to people as they as they went past. So they were yeah, just normal kids, really. Yeah. And and the project you're working on now is about the jet set. Uh, well, it's, yeah, I started off. I started off with a project um, uh, about, yeah, the jet set. Yeah. Um, the old Euro as you might think of them now, really. About the you know very wealthy and uh, people who stateless. I saw it was a sort of mobility theme again. I was quite interested in their statelessness. Mm. They could move from one enormous event to another uh, in a, in a. Uh, Burton Taylor type people. Yeah, but, but people less like well known. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean. Um, Yes, they were celebrities. I mean, they were their events. Their what they did was record in American newspapers. People um, were interested in the jet set. It has a strong influence on British life. Jet, jet set thinking. Um, and what I, but I found that the people themselves were so unappealing that I couldn't really. I felt, you know, I thought they were tedious. You know, it's just they are tedious. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was just drugs and money and yeah. drugs and money. You know, and I thought, well, that's, it's not going to make a very interesting read, really. Yeah. So, but what I thought. What I took from it was that um, the influence that jet set thinking had on ordinary people. Mm. Um, thinking, sort of aspirational thinking. Aspirational thinking, thinking. yeah, because uh, Britain in the 60s, um, you know, I was there at the time, so I didn't need to look it up from a history book. Uh, you know, a lot of the advertising, you know, had a sort of jet set vibe to it. Um, martini adverts being probably a, one of the best known examples, but even milk tray, you know, those sort of. Um, and James Bond was, a, was yeah. peddling a sort of jet set myth. Through the, through the cinemas as well. And that was, that kind of advertising was building on a solid fact that there was social mobility in the 60s, wasn't there? Yes, yeah. From, from the austerity that you were talking about that the Americans were experiencing in the yeah, 50s, yeah. people yeah. were getting rich. Yeah, by the 60s. Not rich, but Yeah, no, we had enough money to go on holiday. And yeah. um, So now what I'm now um, looking at is um, working class, lower middle class uh, Brits flying for the first time and their experiences and what it meant to them. And so I'm about six months into a three-year project on that one. And do you have a tentative 
date for when you think you'll, well, you'll be I think about that out? Well, yeah, I think it, um, current plans, it'll probably come out sometime in 2022. Okay. I'll look forward to reading that, and, and I hope you'll come back to the seminar and uh, yeah, present yeah. on it, because yeah. I, I can imagine there's a lot of really rich visual material as well. So. Oh, yes. To go with that kind of I've thing. read so many 1950s and 1960s holiday brochures. In fact, I'm being slightly obsessed with them. <laughs> <laughs> the British Library has, has tons. Who would who would have yeah. thought? And you're off to the library this <laughs> afternoon. Let's look at some more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, John. Thanks mm. for taking some time to, to come and chat oh, to it's me. A pleasure. And uh, if you want to know the details of John's publications, you can go to the podcast website, or you can search for um, Michael John Law, University of Westminster, and I'm sure that his mm. own page will come up and the Westminster page as well, and you could. You can see the title. Yeah, I've also got my books. own um, website, which is um, johnlaw100.com. Oh, fantastic. Well, there you go. That's the place to go. Um, and if you're listening, uh, if you think you've done some research on sport or leisure history that would be suitable for this, for our seminar series at the IHR, we're looking for speakers for the 2019-2020 academic year. So um, do get in touch via the BSSH website, um, sportinhistory.org or tweet us at the BSSH's account and you too could be sitting on a log in Tavistock Square in about six months time. Well, maybe not, maybe not in Tavistock Square in six months time. It's going to be a significantly cooler than today, I should think. Um, but for now, that's all for this episode. So until next time, it's goodbye from us both. Goodbye. Yeah.